sermon text this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 10. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Fathers, we, as we come before you, as we give attention to the words of your servant Paul as they're brought to us through your servant Nate, we pray, Lord, that you would attend to us. Even as we dive deeper into the hard grace of repentance, the gift that is repentance, we pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage, the strength of spirits, and, and not just of our spirit, Lord, but, but yours, ever more so yours. Reveal yourself to us, we pray. Guide us and deliver us into the word that we may understand it, that it may transform our hearts. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. 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 I want you to picture with me two people, one that is crying. Another that is crying, one that's confessing, and another that's confessing. And then I want you to imagine that one of them is transformed, and the other one goes back to the sin that they were seeking to forsake. Why does that happen? Because it does happen. It happens in the course of our own lives. It's happened in the course of lives of the people in whom we've loved. Where we can see someone and it appears to us through the tears that are falling down their face and the grief that they are experiencing and being wrecked with, that they are experiencing true repentance. And then we find out that it's very short-lived. And like... The Old Testament teaches us like a dog goes back to its vomit. Striking visual picture. We go back to the sin. Whereas another who in outward expression looks like they're doing the same thing. But in, in fact in their, in their life there is a transformation that comes. A change. An embrace of grace that ushers forth in a life that is 
transformed, new desires, new affections, new, new acts of obedience. Repentance is complicated. Repentance is not what it looks like on just face value. When you begin to look at it in the pages of Scripture, you begin to find out it's multifaceted. And it's not exactly confession, though it includes that. It's not feeling remorse, though that's certainly going to be a part of it. That it's something richer and deeper. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it's a grace. What it means by that is to say it's something that you can't do. But it's something that must be given to you. And yet in the grace of repentance will most certainly usher for something you will do. But that doing is not itself the very essence of the repentance. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism in question 18 that asks the question, what is repentance unto life? It says it's a saving grace where a sinner experiences the true sense of their sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God and doth with grief and hatred of that sin turn from it unto God and with full purpose endeavors in new obedience. There's a lot of moving parts in that statement. But I want to distill it down for, for just three pieces as we begin to turn our attention to 2 Corinthians 7. I want you to see that that, that definition, laden with biblical passages, is teaching us that repentance begins downward. It's a grace that starts downward. We acknowledging the true sense of our sin acknowledging the depth of it, getting into the reality of our sin itself. That's, that's where repentance starts. Does turn from that sin unto God. This is, this is the upwardness of the grace of repentance. We turn from that sin unto God. And when we turn unto God, we experience His grace. We experience His kindness and His love in the midst of our brokenness. And then it says, with full purpose, we endeavor in new obedience to the following of Christ. This is the grace that compels us forward. Downward, upward, forward. Three directions when you think about repentance. And here's the thing. You can't go upward to the degree that you need to go upward until you go downward. And you can't go forward to the degree that you want to go forward if you've not first gone downward and upward. They're absolutely contingent on each other. There's a rhythm, we might say a pattern, to the nature of true biblical repentance. And Paul, here in the context of this passage, is teaching us what that is all about. Now it's an unusual passage, I will grant you that. We're jumping in the middle of a story in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In fact, as we started reading today, you're probably thinking, now this has nothing to do with where we were last week, which was in, in 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 6 to 7 where we talked about humility uh, leading us into the exaltation that comes in Christ as we learn to cast all of our cares upon him. Speaking about humility, well, actually, it has a lot to do with that. 
Because today, as we talk about the downward of sin, next week, talking about the upward in the midst of repentance, and the final two weeks, talking about what it's like to be a community that compels each other forward in the work of repentance. What you actually see in the downwardness of grace, coming to grasp, really, our sin, that that's an exercise in humility. It's an exercise in really looking ourselves in the face and coming to terms with the people that we really are. How are we going to have the confidence to do that? And not just keep telling ourselves the legends that we think we are in our own minds. The stories that we rehearse that make us sound like good people. When we actually get to the reality of what's going on inside. How can we have the strength and the confidence to do that? Paul will take us there. He'll take us there this morning. Let's consider these verses together. And I want to do this by setting up the context of this passage and then walking through it briefly and then applying a couple things with you this morning. I want you to see that this passage assumes something. It assumes that Paul has written a letter to the Corinthians. You can actually see it there in verse 8 of our passage. Notice how he begins. For even if I made you grieve with my letter... He's speaking about a letter that he's written, a letter undoubtedly that is a stern one, one that is of rebuke. It's one of correction to the church at Corinth. Now, interestingly, it's likely not the letter of 1 Corinthians. That's probably what would pop into your mind. He's speaking about 1 Corinthians since it's a 2 Corinthians. No, apparently there's a letter between 1 and 2 Corinthians that we no longer have because the situation, the circumstance that he speaks of here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is not referenced in 1 Corinthians. And so that begins to inform us that Paul gave a personal correspondence here, not intended as, as a scriptural letter. And in so doing, he gave a scathing rebuke to the people at Corinth. Now, why did he do this? Well, it seems quite clear if we're putting together some of the details throughout the letter of 2 Corinthians that the church at Corinth had kind of a fallen into a low opinion of the Apostle Paul. Someone who he describes as an opponent actually was speaking disparagingly of the Apostle Paul, whether it's his character as a person or his teaching that was being drawn into question. We're not sure. All of those details are not made available. But we do see that someone had cast Paul in a much darker light. And the church at Corinth had fallen under the spell of it. If you've got your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, you might let your eyes venture down to verse 12 because Paul actually notes these pieces. Notice what he says. So although I wrote to you, verse 12, it was not on account of those who did the wrong. There's the opponent, whoever they are. They're unnamed. Nor on account of the one who suffered the wrong, probably the apostle Paul, though he doesn't use his name here. But then he tells us, here's the reason for writing this letter. In order that your zeal, or it could be translated earnestness, for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Why did Paul write this letter? He, he wanted to restore a relationship. He wanted to set the record straight. He wanted the church at Corinth, which it, it must have deeply grieved him, that this church of whom he had served had already written, had now kind of fallen 
into a situation and circumstance where they no longer looked at the Apostle Paul as someone that they would follow. And Paul here is reestablishing this relationship. We know it was very hard for the Apostle Paul because uh, listen to even how he says it there in verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I want you to hear the Apostle Paul. He's in, the mo- he's in an emotional moment as he's writing verse 8. He's like us. When you have to say hard words to someone, you've got to issue a rebuke or a correction. You've got to bring up a sensitive matter. And when you do that, you're worried. And a lot of times when you're, you're worried, as he says, even in this particular section, I had internal fear over writing this letter. You're hoping that your words are going to be received graciously as they are intended. You're hoping that you don't do more damage to the relationship than has already been done. You're hoping that the words will be received in such a way as so to reunite rather than to cause greater separation. But you're never quite sure, especially when you write a letter, maybe you've done that, and you send it via someone and you just kind of hope that it goes okay. Maybe you, like the Apostle Paul, has written a letter like that and then you've put it in the mail or you've pressed send on your email and as soon as you heard it go, shh. I don't know if that was right. You ever had that moment? Or you almost regretted, oh, maybe that was, maybe my tone wasn't correct or maybe the the word choices that I, I put forward. I hope that they can hear my heart through the difficulty of the language. That's where the Apostle Paul is. Now, this is all complicated because Paul sends this letter by Titus. That's why he uses the language of us, to receive us, speaking of his ministry partners. He sends this letter by Titus while he goes and does more ministry in Asia Minor. And he says, makes his agreement with Titus, Titus, we're going to meet up in Troas, which is right there on the the Aegean Sea, modern-day Turkey. He says, we're going to meet up right there, and then you can tell me how they received the letter. Well, Paul goes to Troas, and when he gets there, there's no Titus. Titus hasn't shown up. And we're told in this passage that Paul, with external conflicts and internal fears at that moment, what has happened to Titus? Where is the Corinthian church? I have no idea. He takes off to Macedonia, maybe to Philippi, possibly to try to find Titus. The good news is he finds Titus. And as he finds Titus, Titus relays to the apostle Paul that indeed the Corinthian church received your letter well. They now have an earnestness, the language he puts here, a zeal for you again. Their affections are once again warmed for you. And the Apostle Paul in this passage is rejoicing that the letter he feared might do damage he had meant to being reunion actually accomplished the purpose for which he sent it as he hears Titus give a report of how the Corinthians received the letter. And then he unpacks it. And this is where we're going to spend a little bit of our time. Verse 8 and verse 9, he begins to talk through a distinction that's really critical. Listen to what he says, verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved how? Into repenting. For you felt, notice the language of the Apostle Paul, you felt, there was something that pierced, we might say, the heart. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss 
through us. And then he explains this, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, if we just pause right there, you can see what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's saying, listen, I sent you this letter of rebuke and correction. I regretted it because I feared how you'd receive it. I'm rejoicing now that you've received it just how I intended it, and you've responded in just the way that I've prayed you would respond, which is that it would, in a sense, be a splash of cold water against your face. It would be a bit of a wound from a friend who loves you. And though it grieves you, I don't rejoice in that, but I grieve, I rejoice in the fact that it grieved you into repentance. It led you into a path that turned from your sin unto God, that you again might endeavor in new obedience by his grace. The Apostle Paul tells us two things. He tells us you can either deal with your sin in a worldly grief way, Or you can deal with your sin in a godly grief way. Which will it be? And he rejoices that what happened in Corinth was the godly grief. But what is this worldly grief? And are we doing that? Or are we doing doing this? Are we moving back and forth between the two? How is Paul defining these terms? That's what we want to explore together. And here's one of the most obvious notes as we begin. Paul assumes that you're going to experience grief because of your sin. I think that needs to be appreciated. A lot of times we think, I'll do X, Y, and Z, and I'll enjoy it, and it'll be fun. There'll be no consequences from it. That's actually what your flesh tells you in the moment of your temptations. You know? There's this wonderful meme that I got sent by one of my pastor friends just a couple of days ago. It had the lead actor from the Pirates of the Caribbean. You know who I'm talking about? It's actually got a scene from the Pirates of the Caribbean. What's his name? Say it again. Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp. Thank you. I knew some of you would know this. He's, he's, running, he's running from the, you know, the natives you know, behind, and they're, they're running after him. And the meme says... They said, be a pastor. It'll be fun, they said. Right? It'll be fun, they said. Natives are running after you trying to kill you. It'll be fun. It'll be fun, they said. Um, That's sort of how sin works. It'll be fun, they said. And all of a sudden, you have the natives on your back. All of a sudden, your life is being threatened. All of a sudden, there's there's a grief that comes with it, and the grief that comes with it is either going to be of a worldly kind or it's going to be of a godly kind. He says it's not that you won't experience grief because of your sin, because you will. The question is, what heart are you going to bring to the grief that sin is going to cause in your life? Because that's going to make all the difference. How are you going to deal with it? In a worldly way? Or are you going to deal with it in a godly way? Which will it be. So what is the difference? Well, I want to walk with you through the nature of true repentance. And I want to make comments on what worldly sorrow or worldly grief looks like. And I want you to hold a mirror up to your soul as we do that. I know, it's going to be painful. But just remember, the deeper you go, 
the higher you go. All right? It starts, godly repentance starts with admitting your sin. That's number one. Admitting your sin. And we think to ourselves, of course, of course. The first question of the membership vow here at Cornerstone is that we are sinners in the sight of God. You know how we say it here, you have to be bad to get in. That's how it works in the church. The church is like the mafia in that way. Now, that's about how they end right there, but that's, that's how it starts. You've got to be bad to get in. You've got to admit on the front end, I am really messed up. So the assumption is, as I'm looking out at all of you this morning, is I've got something on you. I, I know that you're a sinner in the sight of God. And you've got something on me because I'm in this room with you. It starts with the admitting of sin. Here's the deal. I find a lot of people are fine doing that on the front end. But as a way of life, not so much. Not so much. I'm happy to admit that I'm a sin generally, but if you come and actually address a sin of mine, we're gonna, we might come to blows. A, a different kind of grief shows up. A, a worldly grief, a worldly grief that, that scrambles to cover sin rather than willingly admit sin. Feel the difference of that? One is full of pride that says, how dare you? Actually, because of the circumstance, I wasn't sinning at all if you actually knew the fullness of the situation. If you would be put in my circumstances, you would have done the same thing. And you begin the long defenses and explanations. The internal trial lawyer shows up. And he says, you got it all wrong. I'm really awesome. Rather than listening and acknowledging and admitting what you've already said is true of you, that you are a sinner, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope save in his sovereign mercy. Admitting sin is really hard. I mean, I could ask your spouse, and they could tell me about you, It's really hard. It's really hard because it's in that moment that you have to go down. The downward work of repentance. You know the moment when you know someone's actually got you and you can't squirm out of it. And you have to admit, and when you admit, yes, I did X, doesn't something just die inside of you when that happens? It should but it's a good death. It's that pride that's dying. It's that ego that's taking a blow. We'd rather that not happen, but actually that's God's means of saving you. He's got to bring you down in order to raise you up. He's got to dismantle you in order to recreate you. Admitting sin is the very beginning of where godly sorrow comes in. So when... The Apostle Paul, your spouse, anyone writes you a letter and confronts and rebukes, what is your normal disposition in that moment? That tells you where you are in the pathway of repentance. It begins with the admitting of sin. Secondly, it moves to the experiencing of the good guilt of sin. And yes, you heard that right. The experiencing 
of the good guilt of sin. We say this at Cornerstone from time to time, but it's good to feel guilty if you are guilty. Right? If you did something wrong and you feel bad about it, that's a, that's a sign of health. We live in an age that says we should never feel guilty. And that guilt is somehow a disease that you've got to overcome. That you really are as beautiful and wonderful as you think you are. The trap of that is that's actually a lie. And it's deceitful and it's deceptive. Yes, some of us feel guilty feelings. What we might call false guilt. We're carrying things and feeling guilty for things we ought not to feel guilty for. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about feeling guilty because we are guilty. And allowing and experiencing of that guilt in such a way that it actually digs into us. It carves out a cavity in the midst of our soul so that we can replace something that's good there. This is what we mean by godly sorrow and by worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow feels bad because it was painful or because it, you had a human loss that was involved in it or it got you into some trouble. You know, you're sorry because you got caught. That's worldly sorrow. But godly sorrow or godly grief is grieved because the sin itself is an affront to God. Regardless of whether you're presently experiencing the consequences or not, you realize that what it is you've done has been against God and it's caused collateral damage in the relationships of those around you and within your own heart and soul. And as you look at it, you grieve regardless of whether you're in trouble or have had any losses because you realize that you have allowed a cancer to grow within you. A cancer that is an offense to Almighty God. One who is holy and righteous. One who has fashioned you in his image. Has given you the very breath that you're breathing with right now in the pews. That that very one is the one in whom you've sinned against. And a lot of time, it's not that that we're thinking about when we sin, is it? That we don't, we don't sound like... King David in Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. A lot of times we just don't get to that point where we're actually reflecting upon our sin in the presence of a holy God, where we're reflecting on our sins in the presence of a loving God. You know, there's an offense to holiness, but there's also an offense to love. And if you reflect upon the depth of those offenses, you'll find that the offense to love cuts even deeper. What do I mean by that? Well, some of you know when you grew up as, as children, some of you who are children here in this room, maybe this has happened to you one or two times in your life, where you've gotten caught and you can see the pain that it caused your parents or you can see the pain that it caused others around you. And, and, and you, you just cratered. I mean, in your own soul, your own soul just broke down in that moment. Not because you were afraid that you were going to get disciplined. But because you saw the pain that your sin caused by someone else. On someone else. For a split second, you forgot yourself. And you actually cared what you did and how it affected someone else. I'd love more of that in my life. Because there's something of the gospel in that. 
And in those moments where you cry, and in those moments where you confess, and in those moments where you seek to repair and to reconcile, you're working from a godly sorrow. Because it's in those moments you're acknowledging that this sin is really not just about you and your losses and your misdeeds. It's about what you do in relationship to others and what you've done in relationship to God, the one who's loved you. It's in those moments where you realize this parent who gave birth to me, this parent who raised me, this parent who loves me, this parent who would die for me, I just perpetually continue to offend through my sin. And for a long time, I have not cared. And in this moment, it begins to come down upon me that the one who loves me so deeply in worldly manner is the same one who I continue to thumb my nose at through my sin. And in that moment, I am broken to the core. The recognition is you have a divine parent called the Father and whom every single moment of every day in thought, word, and deed, that is the perpetual situation of your heart and my heart as we're walking through life and beginning to experience the measure of that guilt actually goes deeper, deeper into the soul. And it begins to carve out a place for grace to do deeper transformation. You see, Jesus, when he was referencing the woman, the prostitute who came and wept at his feet and washed his feet with her hair, he said that she loved much. Why? Because she'd been forgiven much. She, could, she stared at the face of Jesus and tears came down her down her face, and she fell to the ground. Why? Because she got it. The willingness of that confession, the openness of the recognition of that guilt, the debt of love that she desired to pay, godly grief, godly sorrow. You see, that's really the third component is this willingness to thoroughly confess. You know what worldly sorrow always does is it confesses only enough that people know about. You know, you get caught and you're only going to say what little you need to say. And you'll keep the real realities of darkness behind rather than being thorough in your confession. Or being unwilling. Being forced to confess. You know how this works. Parents, you who make your son or your daughter say, I'm sorry, when they... You know, Johnny hits Susie, and you make them stand with one another. Johnny, do you have something to say? I'm sorry. Susie, I'm sorry. Okay. All is well now. Right? Of course not. Now, sometimes the patterns of confession are really important to get to the heart over a period of time. But is anybody fooled whether that is true repentance or not? Of course it's not. Of course it's not. You know what that saying is? Let's get this done. If you find in your heart a willingness to run through the guilt of your sin fast, you should pause and pray about that. A lot of times it's the quickness of our confession that hinders the depth of our repentance. The quickness. The flippancy. 
Even when we say things like, I'm sorry, and the other says, it's okay. It's not okay. (laughs) It's not okay. I forgive you. But let's be serious. This Jesus bled for that. Let's don't trivialize it. Let's don't make it light. You see, if we make our sin light, we make grace light. Because it's only in the background of the darkness of the depth of sin where the brightness of the light of grace shines. The deeper you go, the higher you fly. In the reality of repentance, one has to, in sense, do the hard work of repentance, going down, increasing in one's hatred for sin, fighting one's sin in the depth, realizing and fighting again and failing and then coming back to it and doing the work over and over again. That's what Luther knew. And he actually believed that was the very heart of the Christian life. You see, when we start willingly and thoroughly confessing our sin, what begins to happen is an increase in hatred for our sin. I had to confess this this week in preparing this message, is looking over the course of my life and taking inventory and realizing, Lord, there are some sins that just don't bother me like they should. They just don't. They just don't. I begin to pray, and to pray for my own heart, Lord, increase my conscience sensitivity to the breaking of your law and to the spurning of your grace. Increase my sensitivity. You know, we live in a time that doesn't just allow but celebrates sin in many regards. And we're inundated with that. And what that means is the breaking down of the sensitivities in our own hearts regarding those sins often happen. And we find ourselves all of a sudden not horrified anymore by things that God says are an abomination to him. When we notice that happening in our own heart, we've got to pause and we've got to say to the Lord, Lord, increase my sensitivity to the breaking of your law. Give me your heart for these things. For he says the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates wickedness and the one who loves violence, Psalm 11.5, God is a righteous judge who feels, notice this, indignation every day for the wickedness of sin. And it's not just the Old Testament, so you can't blame it on that. John chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not believe and obey the Son shall not have life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Think of this. What if the measure of your repentance, the depth and the authenticity and the realness and the trueness of it, could be seen by the increasing of your hatred for sin? What if the depth of your repentance could be measured by the increase of your hatred for sin? How does that, how's that working in your soul? You see, when I press that into my soul, I'm just slayed. I'm just slayed. And when you begin to see these pieces and components of repentance come together, now, friends, I mean, let's be honest. When you begin to hear things like this, are you not in your own soul saying, have I ever repented? Ever. At any point. If this is the dimensions of what true repentance is, have I ever repented? Now, that's a complicated question. 
If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your assurance is found entirely and completely in him. The nature of that repentance is not from you, but is a gift from him. So at one level, yes, you have repented through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at another level, no, you have not begun to repent in the way that God requires of you. Listen, this is why the principle of repentance, this principle is so critical. If you admit your sin, you willingly confess your sin, you grow in the hatred of that sin, and you and I are all recognizing that we don't do that to the degree that we ought. This is why the next component is turning from sin unto God. Turning from sin unto God. Listen to this. Repentance is not. It is not. I've done wrong, now I'm going to do right. That's not what repentance is. If, if you... If you have conceived of repentance that way, you're never going to grow. You know why? Because you're going to constantly get utterly defeated on Monday morning when you try to do something right and you lose it again. Like that's going to happen over and over and over again. Because you can't go straight from guilt to obedience. You have got to turn to God. You have got to turn to God. Listen, friends, when you've walked through these pieces of repentance and you begin to ask yourself the question, have I ever truly repented? The answer is No, not really. Which is why, by God's grace, you need to repent of your repentance. Because it's never full. And it's never as deep as it should be. Which is the point of the very gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see, when you begin to go into the depth of the nature of your sin, you begin to realize that even the righteous deeds that you have done were motivated by all kinds of selfish selfish inclinations. And even in your best moments, you begin to acknowledge as your best moments and took pride for those best moments and then sinned in the midst of those best moments. Amen? All right. So in the midst of what God is doing great in your life, don't you find sin right there with it? Get comfortable with the fact that you have never done a purely righteous deed. And you never will. Your sin, even in its repentance, at its best moments, is in need of God's grace. When you turn from that acknowledgement to God who receives you through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be the woman wiping his feet with your hair. You will acknowledge, you will see the magnanimity of his grace. You'll see the remarkable gift of the blood of Jesus for your sins. You will want to sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That's what you'll say. Because you begin to realize you're not going to outrun this. You have got to have a Savior who will kill this by his grace. Who has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. And when you begin to drink in that love, you know what begins to happen. You don't begin to say, oh great, nothing's required of me. That's not what you do. If you're saying that, you don't see it. What you will begin to say is if I have received love like that from a God who knows me 
more than I even know myself. And the ugliness that I see within myself wouldn't make me ever love me. And he knows infinitely more about how dark I am. And he died for me anyway. And he loves me. And every moment that as it were I'm spitting in his face with my sin, he is reaching out in grace to embrace me. And he will do that all of your life into eternity. When you get that in the soul, you will want to run in that love. You will want to become like the God who loves you in that way. You will be not modifying your behavior. You will be transforming your heart by God's grace. Do you see the deeper you go into repentance, the richer and the more beautiful the grace of Christ allows you to ascend and the freer you walk in this life. So friends, here's the reality. God desires a broken and contrite heart. The way that broken and contrite heart happens is you've got to go down into the depths of your sin. You've got to go down. And when you go down and you find yourself hopeless, there's no way you can climb out of it. You will find an arm reaching down into the depth of that pit and you will find him pulling you up by his strength. And you will learn the lesson of the gospel that you can't climb out of it. And he never called you to climb out of it. But that he through his righteous right hand lifts you up and he has set you upon the rock that is Jesus. That's the walk of repentance. And that changes your life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you know the measure of this grace that we need right now in this room. Listen to the hearts of your people and meet us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.